When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 148 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined par usual by my friend, cohort, co-host, and partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson from the East Coast of the United States of America. And long-time listeners know that we are into hard rock, classic rock, prog rock, heavy metal, early MTV, and more. And since I lived in the UK, we do a lot of dichotomy over how some bands make it big on one side of the pond, but not so much on the other. And it can go either way. It could even be British bands who make it in America, but not so big in the UK. It's just there's different cultures, there's different timing, and you never know when something might hit in one place, but maybe not so much in the other. And today we're going to review an album. It might come as a little bit of a surprise because it's not really hard rock. It's not prog rock. It's not heavy metal. They were on MTV and they're not really an English band or an American band. It's an amalgamation of them. In fact, it's a super group that nobody saw coming. And that's the Traveling Wilburys made up of the Beatles' George Harrison, the legendary Bob Dylan, the extraordinary Roy Orbison, ELO's Jeff Lynne, and Tom Petty. I guess they were all friends. George wanted to work again, and they figured out a way to put together this extraordinary record. Probably did better in the U.S. than it did in the U.K., but it did well all around the world, really. Part of that's thanks to MTV. But I'll admit that we recorded this in the summer. We recorded it a ways back, and we've been doing so much heavy metal and hard rock stuff. I kind of wanted to break. I said, Jackson, how about we do the Traveling Wilburys' first album? He was kind of like, huh? You want to do what now? But I have very fond memories of this. I remember listening to this on the radio, seeing it on MTV. And even though I was a rebellious teenager and wanted to listen to hard rock and heavy metal, it was something that my mother liked. So it was something we could have in common. Like we're in the car, we don't have to fight over the radio when this comes on. It's like, oh, okay, this is great. Because the pedigree of the people in this band is extraordinary. And it really kind of kicked off an amazing run of creativity for all the members of the band. A lot of success, a lot of fun that they had in the ensuing years. And I think that being a part of this Traveling Wilburys band was huge for all of them. And so I thought it would be a fun one to discuss here on the show. Now, before we get into it, got to take care of a little bit of business. As usual, we love to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family. It's a network of about 100 different shows, music-related, not all rock and roll. There really is something in there for everyone. And you can check out more about them at PantheonPodcast.com or follow at Pantheon Pods. And of course, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Based in the UK, doing this for 40 years, folks. They have over of a quarter of a million items in stock. They've got LPs, singles, CDs, posters, tour programs, ticket stubs, signed memorabilia, stuff from all over the world. Things that you won't find at your local record store. 
And if you go to rarevinyl.com and use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, when you check out, you can save 10% off your orders. Now, that's a one-time discount. So don't just go in and buy a $6 CD. Go buy a treasure. Go buy something that's hard to find, something that you love, that's in great condition. Use the code UGLY, save a big 10%, and they will ship it to you anywhere around the world. Doesn't matter if you're in Austria or Australia, rarevinyl.com will get it to you in good shape. So use the code UGLY, save 10% at rarevinyl.com. Now back to the Wilburys, you know, George Harrison, he had had success on a Cloud9 album, and that was produced by Jeff Lynne of ELO fame. And he had so much fun, it's like, well, maybe we could do something with some other big-time singers. And I think George wanted to do something with Bob Dylan. I think Jeff wanted to do something with Roy Orbison. So they figure, hey, let's get them all together. And George had recently befriended Tom Petty. Of course, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers had recently toured with Bob Dylan. So they all kind of knew each other. There's kind of this confluence coming together, really, I think, spearheaded by George and his partner in crime jeff and you can just hear that they're having some fun on this album which to jaded old rock stars who's, who've dealt with the pains of the record business and record executives and AR people and to kind of have a little autonomy to go out and do something on their own have some fun i think it was a big deal for all of them i think it changed their perspective in a way and the success that followed not only from this album but what they all did in the ensuing years this was the catalyst this was very important to them so i know it's a little bit different but I think you'll like it. We're going to go over Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1, track by track, here on The Wolf. After weeks of hard rock and heavy metal, correct? thought it might be fun to take a break from some of that. Man cannot live on heavy metal alone. <laughs> Although I know there's some people who fight, but honestly... It's an important part of our lives, but it's not the only part of our lives. I said, all right, well, let's try to mix it up a little bit. What else, what other albums are having some big anniversaries that we might be interested in talking about? And then I just kind of going through a few lists, I just happened to find The Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1, is coming up on its 35th anniversary. I'm like, you know what? This is a fun album i remember having this back in the day obviously a huge super group and we just watched that tom petty documentary on wildflowers which came out what five years after after this album did i thought well this will be fun because it blends so many different styles it was something that i had and we listened to maybe a little bit not a lot but a little bit in college and so i said all right jackson let's do traveling wilburys and your reaction was yeah, all right <laughs> it was it it was a little bit i don't want to say it, it was a surprising suggestion let me put it to you that way because i had kind of not that i forgot about this but like i ne i didn't never spend a lot of time with this record they had a couple of big hits off of this that i remember but the rest of the album really isn't like the the stuff that you heard on the radio which i was pleasantly surprised about yeah i mean that's the thing obviously yes they had two big hits that they had big mtv produced videos for and honestly volume three did have the same thing had a few more however on volume three i'm not sure that they picked the right songs as singles there's some great songs on that one that that never hit the singles chart whereas this one i mean the two big ones which is handled with care and end of line the first and last songs on the album fairly big hits in the u.s the album itself went triple platinum in the U.S., even went platinum in the U.K., uh, and did well in Canada and Australia and stuff like that. But they, there were some songs that did okay on, like, adult contemporary radio lists, or maybe got some good airplay time. 
but they weren't really big hits. And just the blending of all these musical styles. I mean, Bob Dylan is obviously very different from Roy Orbison, who is very different from, say, George Harrison. You know, Tom Petty kind of has his own thing going, and Jeff Lynn produces it all, right? He's kind of mm-hmm. the multi-instrumentalist. And we got to talk about how all these guys came together, but this time from like 87 to 92 or so, saw all these guys really kind of blow up. And I think a lot of it has to do with this collaboration that they all got into. That's what I was thinking about. I mean, it, because while Tom Petty would go on to do Full Moon Fever and you know Into the Great Wide Open and Wildflowers, like we were talking about, I mean, at this point in time, this was kind of a weird in-between section for a lot of these guys, including Bob Dylan. Like he was around, but like that, he was yet to put out that Oh Mercy record that was big. Mm -hmm. So I kind of think like for for people like us in that age group, like this record really kind of introduced us to a lot of the, or maybe reintroduced these guys to a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at this point we're 15 or so. And we right. love Van Halen, and, and we're starting to get into, you know, super guitar heroes. Obviously, Zeppelin was big for us, starting to get into Rush and stuff like this. But then, and, and I've been, been banding pop music for a few years now, just knowing mm-hmm. that just what they play on the radio isn't all great. What MTV is pushing isn't always awesome. So I, I need to go out and find other music somehow. And it's when I started getting to, like, Police Back Catalog and Stones Back Catalog and things like that. But this one was, you know, came out pop. And it was something my mother liked, and I liked it too, you know, because uh, Tom Petty was, obviously Tom Petty had been big, Don't Come Around Here No More had been a big hit for him, though I didn't yeah. love it, it was a big video for him. And of course, the guy who helped write that song, Dave Stewart, played a role in getting the Wilburys together, because mm-hmm. they went to Dave's kitchen, all five of them, with <laughs> acoustic guitars, and, and jammed out here, there's video of that, and like, whose kitchen is that? Well, that's Dave Stewart's, like, He's not even in the band. He didn't even produce this. But it was, I guess it came from, George made kind of a comeback album in 87 with Cloud9. Mm-hmm. Jeff Lynn produced it. Had the big song, Got My Mind Set On You. That was a big one. And so they started to kind of hatch a plan in early 87. It's like, why don't we make a group of people we just really like, people we really want to be with, and that kind of thing. And, and George brought up Bob Dylan, and Jeff brought up Roy Orbison. So they started thinking about that. Meanwhile, Dylan was on tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Basically, Tom and the Heartbreakers were his backing band, for, you know, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. But that's yeah. exactly what it was. And they did Europe like that. And I guess at the end of the tour, you know, they go to a party or something like that. It's Tom's birthday. And Dylan introduces him to George Harrison and like Ringo, you know. And Tom even, there's a great documentary that Martin Scorsese did. It's like, you know, I kind of got all these new friends. And I was kind of off on my own new adventure. Right? So then it kind of became, all right, they just kind of asked Roy to join. And then, you know, they decided, let's let's make some of these songs and do something with it. And I also think it was born out of, they needed a B-side for a Harrison track. Mm-hmm. And then, it, I don't know if it was end of the line, it was one of those. Basically, the director was like, this is too good to be a B-side on the solo. <laughs> and so like, okay, yeah, we'll go in and do an album. And that's kind of where it started. In L.A., because that's where everyone had a place. Yeah, and it was an interesting concept to think that at that point in time, George Harrison was kind of sick of being a solo artist. He wanted a band around him. He wanted to write songs with guys who were his contemporaries and put something out that he was a part of instead of having to do everything on his own. Um, and especially guys like this, like I guess he was a big fanboy of Roy Orbison, who was kind of an odd duck in the rock and roll pantheon of 
you know, the original guys. He's kind of a he's kind of nerdy looking. Mm-hmm. He wasn't very he was very soft spoken. He wrote songs about like heartache and pain and not like, you know, all the girls I've loved before. Right. Huge, huge influence on like Bruce Springsteen. Yep. And uh I think he even introduced I think Springsteen introduced him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But yeah, and a dude who was when when did he die? He was fifty two when he died. So that he was late forties, early fifties when he was doing this. Could still sing. Oh yeah, extremely well. Yeah, no doubt. And I think you're right. I think he was a huge influence on everyone who mm-hmm. became artists in the sixties. Everyone loved Roy Orbison. He still had that beautiful voice. But you're right. I mean, it was a bunch of mellow ballads for the most part, you know. And like Elvis went on to be huge, and Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins, whoever you want to throw in there. And then Roy, you know, he once the Beatles. <laughs> Ironically, yeah. and Dylan came along. <laughs> you know, I think he hadn't had a hit since like the mid '60s, so he yeah. he kind of plodded along, just kind of doing his old hits and, and playing where he wanted to, and, and that kind of thing. I think out of all the guys, he was the one who was the most excited about the success of this album because he really hadn't had anything in, in a couple of decades. Whereas mm-hmm. Dylan, you know, he got big in the '70s and he kind of went away. He did his Christian music. He came back in the 80s to do some good albums. They didn't really get huge. Obviously, Tom and the Heartbreakers were big at the beginning of the 80s. By the late 80s, they were kind of trailing. And yeah. George was, he shunned the light. I mean, he didn't ever want to tour. And he made an album in, what, 81 or 82 or something like that that wasn't huge. So, and obviously, ELO hadn't been together for a while. So, I don't know. It was just this convergence of all this talent. And I think what also made it really work, Jackson, is they checked their egos at the door. They didn't, you know say, this is my song, you're going to do it my way. They all just kind of said, all right, we're going to get to do this and see what happens. Yeah, they had a, uh, like about a 20 or 25 minute video. I don't know what it was, what it was included with, but it showed part of the recording thing. Like you were saying, they showed them in Dave Stewart's kitchen. And yet that's what it looked like. It looked like they would just kind of sit around and collaborate. Some of it was, you know, you sing this part, see if it, see if it works. Somebody else sings it, see who sounds better. So yeah, it really right. seemed like they were there to work together and not kind of step all over each other. Although it's interesting because Jeff Lynn was a fan of the Beatles and I'm sure as was Tom Petty. And, you know, then you've got Harrison, who was a fan of Orbison. So everybody's a fanboy of somebody in this room. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it looked like they really did take each other's advice. Now, mm-hmm. the songs are all tri- credited to the Traveling Wheelbarrow. However, if you dig in and see which publishing company the songs went to, you can kind of tell who, who wrote them. And sometimes you can kind of tell anyway. Right. I, I, feel, I feel like the George Harrison songs really stick out because... They're kind of bright and cheery and have those chord progressions <laughs> that you're used to. You can kind of tell the Dylan stuff because not only is he seeing lead on it, but you know, it kind of has that Dylan-esque storytelling about it. So you can kind of tell who wrote which ones. But it, it, like you said on that video, which eventually they put out like a Wilburys collection, which had the first two albums, plus some singles and some unreleased stuff that they didn't put out, plus a video. And I think George put together the video for record company. People. I don't know if he ever intended it to go out to the public or not. But, I mean, you can see him in the studio. And Jeff Lynn is, like, giving Dylan some direction, you know, when he's in the in the box doing his vocals. And George's like, or, or, let's try this. And Bob's like, yeah, look, we'll, we'll do it your way, you know. Please. <laughs> so, and that's a guy who doesn't really like to take a whole lot of direction, as mm-hmm. you know. But I think there is so much mutual respect here. Jeff and George did do the producing with Jeff basically being the engineer on it. Yeah. 
And I didn't realize that I knew that uh, Jeff had produced Tom Petty a lot. I didn't realize that he was working on he worked on the Cloud Nine record, and then he would go on to work with pretty much all the rest of these dudes in some capacity. Uh, and we've talked about this before. Really, when you talk about Jeff Lynn, he's more of the in the production side. Then, I mean, ELO had hits, but I mean, really, if you it, the, his contribution to rock and roll was more on the production side. Yeah, and when they put ELO in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was a little surprised. They were they were pushing to put Sheik in the Hall of Fame all those years because mm-hmm. now Rogers deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for all his work as a songwriter and a producer. Not to mention the, the song team they achieved. and they couldn't get in and couldn't get in, and they kind of made a special thing like you know special contributor. Nah, Rogers or something like that. And I said, mm-hmm. that's that's what they ought to do for Jeff Lynn. I don't know that ELO is really a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, but Jeff Lynn is a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, thanks to what he did in ELO and as a producer later on all that. And then they went ahead and let ELO in anyway. I, it kinda, I thought that smacked of racism, but we're not going to get into that <laughs> right now. It's a whole different show. Yeah, it's a different show altogether. But then they all love this so much that, you know, they all work on, uh, except for Dylan, Roy Orbison's Mystery Girl, which is kind of his comeback album, which we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about here later. But yeah, they all work together on Full Moon Fever with Harrison contributing some and, and obviously Jeff Lynn doing the production. There's a song that George did called Cheer Down, which I'm fairly certain ended up on the Lethal Weapon 2 soundtrack. You can kind of hear it in the credits at the end. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's George Harrison. Well, it turns out, you know, he and Jeff and Tom wrote that together as they did. And and then Jeff and Tom wrote You Got It, which is Roy's big hit on Mm -hmm. Mystery Girl with Roy. You know, Harrison contributed to Dylan's Under the Red Sky album, which came out in 1990. Uh, So, you know, all of a sudden, they're all kind of hot together. Yeah, and it's interesting how the uh, this collaboration permeated through it, the albums that you just mentioned. So yeah, I mean, it, it definitely seemed like they did like working together. They really thought of themselves as compatriots and it, it valued members of the songwriting process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's just, I think once you get rolling, it's just you you realize that, yeah, this, this guy's on the same page. Like, we can we can uh, put things together. Like there was one of these things, one of the tracks that Dylan sings lead on, I don't remember what it was, but he was in the recording booth and he's got his little notebook with him. And they're like, yeah, he writes really small. Like you can't even really see what he's, you know, the the deal on there. And he's changing up the lyrics there and they're watching, the, you know, giving him the thumbs up. Like, yeah, he'll change one line. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one thing that really came through as far as like, Dylan doesn't have the greatest voice in the world, but he can write lyrics oh my God. that's his deal it's like it's just like yeah like how did you come up with that like one once one phrase or one line that just it, you just nailed it every single time yeah i mean his talent is not as a singer his talent is as a songwriter and obviously so many people have covered his stuff and sometimes they make it a lot better obviously Jimi hendrix with all along the watchtower jumps to yeah. mind immediately but there's a heck of a lot of songs like that you know and then you know they worked on dylan's 30th anniversary celebration Christmas All Over, which is, I love that Tom Petty and Heartbreakers Christmas song. A lot of the rock and roll Christmas songs get old to me. I guess, <laughs> guess who worked on that? Well, it was Jeff Lynn, you know, right? Mm. And when the Beatles released Free as a Bird, who helped produce that? Well, it was Jeff Lynn, you know, and they had a Roy Orbison posthumous album with to do. It was Jeff Lynn, you know, so he's, he's all over the place here. And I really like his voice. Yeah, it's... I think I think part of it is is that it's it's kind of it's not super dynamic. Like he's got he's got a box that he fits in, but especially in this context, he, he goes along really well with everybody else's. And on Dylan's stuff, 
he can't sing other stuff, but he can sing Bob Dylan stuff really well. It's like Keith, you know, like Keith yeah. doesn't have the greatest voice, but he he on his songs he sounds fantastic. Yeah, you know, so and I think it's really invigorated George to be like, okay, this I don't have to do it the way where yeah, everything just says George Harrison, it's all mm-hmm. on me. I, I can be more collaborative. I don't have to be this precious beetle in his own little box somewhere. And, I can be and, part of something again. Yeah. And to me on this record, it really kind of hammered home how his voice really is synonymous with rock and roll also. Like I know John Lennon, okay, and we know Paul McCartney. We those were the two guys in the Beatles who did the big stuff or the the bulk of it. But when Harrison sings, you're like, yeah, his his voice is pretty it, it can go toe-to-toe with those guys. And the harmonies between all of them, kind of throughout all of these songs, really, mm-hmm. is pretty magical. Yeah, it's, it's pretty special. Yeah, they they fit in very well together. The only one I will say that that kind of doesn't is Orbison, but only because it's like his is so much more different and more powerful than the rest of them. It's kind of hard. Sick, to yeah. almost, it's almost kind of hard to contain that one voice. Yeah, it's true, and that's why they give him some good lead breaks on, yeah. on a lot of these songs. But we talk about checking their egos at the door. You know, there's kind of a story where where George says, "Look, we all know you're Bob." Bill. But we're going to treat you like we treat everybody else, you know. And Bob actually kind of pushed back on us and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of you. You guys don't need to be in awe. I'm especially Roy, and I'm sure to some degree, George. It's like, you know, it'll, it'll work the same way. But they, they really kind of had to work around Dylan's touring schedule because at that point, Dylan was kind of touring relentlessly and still cranking out albums. And so, you know, they, they kind of had to fit in with him, I feel like. Uh, but... It was like all the rest of them seemed to, you know, they're mostly LA guys. I mean, I think Bob had a place in Malibu and they may have used his studio in there to do some stuff. But I feel like the other four guys kind of all got along and Dylan's kind of the outlaw. Which would make sense. But it, I mean, it seemed to all come together. And like you said, it seemed like no, I mean, I'm sure they had disagreements, whatever, but it really seemed like they enjoyed being part of something that was bigger than just one person. Yeah. And apparently they bonded over liking. Monty Python sketches, of course, you know, George knows those guys really well. He financed their films, you know, he, he buddies with all of them. Yeah. But but it was like amazing how Roy, even Roy, you see, but maybe that's the generation behind him. Maybe you would catch on to all that. He can recite a whole skit, you know, and it was like, they're amazing. <laughs> Roy knows these things like inside and out. It's unbelievable. But in another throw to kind of dampen down their egos, they all gave themselves pseudonyms for the record. So, like George was Nelson Wilbury and Lynn uh, was Otis Wilbury. Uh, and Tom, being the younger one, he was Charlie T. Wilbury Jr. You know, Roy was Lefty and, and Bob was Lefty. And then for volume three, they changed their names again, you know. And mm-hmm. Jim Keltner, who played the drums, who was George Harrison's longtime confidant and, and bandmate in his solo albums. In fact, when George had to become a solo artist and then create a fan club, he basically made it to Jim Keltner. You know, it's like send a self-undressed elephant instead of a self-addressed envelope to, you know, instead of George Harrison, it's like the Jim Keller fan club or whatever. <laughs> so he's he's been around, he's played with everybody, and, and he's in the videos. You can see him uh, on both these videos. Uh, he's he's solid, he's rock solid. It must have been a lot of fun to, for him to be able and he's Otis side, no, I'm sorry, he's uh, Buster Sideberry. That's who he's credited as. Uh, on the record so it must have been fun for him to be around all these folks yeah and it, and it you know they, there was a there was a the legend of, 
the traveling Wilburys or something about how they were from this place or they made up this story. So yeah, they were just goofing around, having a good time. And I think they were all supposed to be like brothers or cousins or something from yeah. some backwoods place or something. I don't know, but it speaks to the fact that th they were all just having fun on this record. Yeah. And I think even the name Wilbury came from the idea that like, Oh, that's not quite right. It's like, we'll bury that in the mix. <laughs> we'll bury that in the production. you know, And that just kind of became Wilbury. And then back to the Monty Python thing, I mean, Michael Palin, as Hugh Jampton, uh, did the album Liner Notes, and then Eric Idle did the Liner Notes for Volume 3. In fact, he appeared in the Wilbur and Twist video on Volume 3 with John Candy. You know? So they're obviously having a little fun here. It's not so serious. I think it's like a record company couldn't mess with them because there's too much firepower for them to come <laughs> in and say, Okay, now maybe you should record this differently. Maybe you try this. There's no A and R man like hovering over the shoulder. Yeah, like yeah, I don't hear a single here. We gotta, we gotta put something together. Yeah, so I, I think that made George really happy, and I, I know that that makes Tom Petty happy as well. So I feel like they're left on their own to go do something fun, and some great stuff came out. Yeah. Yeah, and, and get to get to hang out with people who they normally would not. I mean, if you, if you put if you put uh, a George Harrison record together, right? Like he could pretty much get whoever he wanted to to play back right. up for him. But yeah. to have people who were you know his his either his contemporaries or people that he idolized, that was kind of a whole nother level for all these guys. I think. I think like so. There, there was a great story about, I think it was Peter Frampton got asked to uh, be on one of Harrison's records and he comes in and, you know, he's all ready to go and Harrison is there and he's, you know, he says, oh, you know, hey, Pete. And Pete, Frampton's like, oh my God, he knows, he knows who I am. He knows my name. But like this, this is a whole different, I mean, no offense to Peter Frampton, but this is a whole nother level with getting to work with these guys. No, and I, I remember that story. He's like, he started strumming along mm -hmm. and he's like, no, Peter, you're playing lead. I'm playing rhythm. <laughs> like, that's why you're here. Because uh, Peter's like, uh, this is George Harrison. I got to defer to him. He's like, no, man, you do your thing. That's, that's why I want you here, not for you to strum along. Hi, this is Jim Cregan, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. And they're just the best. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, well, we better get into uh, we better get into some of these tracks here. Okay, five songs per side. I only ever had this on CD, but first song handled with care, first single. Which and the the, the story goes that they're at Bob Dylan's, I think, in his recording studio, and they're like, what are we doing, George? He goes, well, we got a song, and, it, and he saw a box that said "Handle with Care." He's like, it's called "Handle with Care." I've got all these <laughs> I've got all these songwriters here. Let's go. Let's get it together. Let's get a song going. And then you know they start throwing out lines. Like, no, that's not going to be thrown out. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good, that kind of thing. This does get credited to Harrison's publishing. But I just remember the video, right? They're in kind of an abandoned old warehouse or something like that, and they're all standing in a circle with the kind of center mic drop above them, mm-hmm. and they take turns stepping up and stepping back to sing their parts. I just remember the star power of this video is unbelievable. Right. And I, and I think I remember, I mean, I knew everybody in there, but I had really never heard Orbison sing on anything that was relatively new, like the old stuff, like only the lonely. But yeah, right. I, I remember thinking to myself, I, and at that point in time, I thought he was, you know, probably 70 when he was really only, you know, late forties. Exactly. I'm like, damn, that guy can really still sing. I know. And, and they talk about how that, like, hey, we're all friends with him and we're all having dinner together, you know. Or, but then he goes and gets on the mic and, and sings into the camera. Oh, shit, that's what it was. <laughs> and he is still amazing. I can't believe I'm friends with him. believe he got into this band? Because, again, the story goes that, like, Jeff and George and, and Tom went to, like, a Roy Orbison show in L.A. And, and before the show, they asked him to join. And of course he said yes. And then they went out and he did the show. It was like, and it was incredible. And we're, they're like punching each other. Like, did you believe we got him in the band? Did you, did you understand this? This is unbelievable. But you know, this is a Harrison song that you know he starts the vocals out. He's first on lead and he has the big slide guitar throughout. That is George Clinton's slide. Which I didn't know. I mean, I, I kind of thought perhaps maybe listening to this, that Mike Campbell was hanging around somewhere. He was not. So yeah, all these guys, I, it, it, there really isn't a whole lot of extra personnel on this other than the percussion. Being beat up and battered around Being sent up and I'm being shot down you're the best thing that I've ever 
Ray Cooper, who, you know, is kind of a legend, and I saw him play very Clapton on the journey before. He added a little bit to Keltner. But that's really about it. Jim Horn on sax, you know, not, not too many others. And like you see in the video, George is playing slide. Dylan's strumming a 12-string. Mm-hmm. And Petty plays the bass. And that was really his role as an instrumentalist in the Wilburys, was playing the bass on all these songs. Which is interesting because he, uh, that, I mean, that's not his deal in in his band but i guess it's one of those like yeah i really can't i'm not going to compete with the rest of these guys on guitar so what can i do yeah yeah you can only layer so many guitars in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, like my sweet lord they layered like 12 or something on there but you don't need that much and so yeah and then lynn's plugged in his guitar of course he can play a little piano if need be you know and so yeah george is singing and then there's the break and and Bob and Tom sing together, right? Yeah, yeah. Got somebody, and then Roy and Jeff kind of lend a little bit to the to that, and then they do their thing with Roy getting a chance to shine. You know, I'm so tired of being I mean, to have all these different voices in it is kind of amazing. And the second break, it's Roy and Jeff who were leading with Bob and Tom kind of coming in to back them up. So there's a lot of balance here. And even Dylan breaks out his harmonica a little bit at the end. Yeah, and that's what that's what I kind of thought this whole record was going to be. And I'm glad they didn't do that because on one or two, or I guess maybe three tracks on this one, is where they, they kind of all go back and forth as like lead singers. Having to fit that into every song, I think, would have been tiresome. But on this one, especially being the lead single, they, I think they do a really good job of getting everybody a chance to shine. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very collaborative, you know. And the, the single did pretty well. I mean, went to two on album rock tracks in America: thirty adult contemporary, forty five on the Hot One Hundred, made about top twenty in the UK. And top 10 and 20 in some places around the world, you know, and the video certainly helped that, you know, and so, hey, that's great. You know, I mean, that's, that's super cool. It's, it's, it's great that, uh, that they achieved some success here. And it was back with Margarita, which is on uh, side two or you know, later in the album, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a little bit. But I think they were all pretty psyched about it. I think especially Roy was psyched about it because Roy hadn't been on the charts in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. Petty's, you know, been on the charts a lot. Dylan gets on the charts and then he fades. George can care less about the charts. He, he kind of automatically gets in there. Anything he does. <laughs> Seriously, there's so many Beatles fans out there that they're going to buy anything that, that he does at some point. And I think Roy was really chuffed, like, hey, man, you know, the album went up high in the charts and was doing well. And he was, you know, it went to number one in Australia and Canada. It went to uh, number three on the Billboard Hot 100. So he was. He was pretty psyched about. It. Yeah, yeah. It and uh, I mean, I think it sold three million in the United States, which is nothing to sneeze at. And yeah, basically made him extremely relevant again. And then, I mean, unfortunately, it, he wouldn't last on this earth that much longer. But you had mentioned, you know, Mystery Girl. That was a that was a big hit record for him. Um, I think in in eighty nine or maybe ninety when that came out, right after this, and so yeah, I mean, basically in in a in one second, his career was back. Yeah, I mean, and, and this won a Grammy, you know, for best mm-hmm. best rock performance by a group with vocal. I mean, did great. Now, yeah, Mystery Girl, sadly, it was his biggest selling album ever, and it was basically it came out after he died. Um, mm-hmm. But they had enough of him doing the song 
in the studio that they'd shot a video. Right. And, and I mean, the, so for all of the, all of the awful things that happened to him in his life, you know, personal tragedies for him to be able to go out on top was a huge plus for him, I believe. And, you know, he was happy. He was, he was back to being relevant, back to being, you know, uh, more of a household name, even though his life was cut short. I think he was only 52 when he died. It was, uh, if you had to pick it, that's the way you'd want to go out. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And there's a funny, there's a funny thing in that Tom Petty documentary where it's like, you know, I guess George had called up Tom, you know, about how Roy died. And Tom goes, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you what he said, but I'm going to tell you. He, he goes, aren't you glad it wasn't you? And Tom's like, well, yeah, yeah, I am, <laughs> quite frankly. And then George goes, he'll be all right. George was very, very spiritual man. Olivia said that when he died, the room lit up like his spirit showed a great big light. Hmm. I don't know about all. <laughs> I hope it's true, but I don't know. But but that's the way it was, and 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 so he you know he believed that there was you would live on some way, and that your spirit will be okay. And so he said, "Yeah, Roy will be okay." And I'm just glad that he was included in this video, his first hit in a long time. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Second song is "Dirty World" with Dylan on lead vocals and the other guys helping to fill in here. A little bit. What was your take from this second song on the record? This was, a, it, like I said, this was a little bit strange to me, or not strange, but it was interesting how we we kind of shift gears now because I mean this really is a Bob Dylan song. He he is you know if you work the math backwards, he is credited with writing this, or his publishing company is. That's right. I mean it's it, it it fits his vocal styles well. I did like the part about how in that video they were showing how the the Percussion was done on anything that they could find, up to and including the refrigerator shelves. Mm -hmm. Like they're just beating on things to make interesting sounds. Um, and I do like the I like the call and response um, element of this too. You yeah. know, and then they then they go into the random lines from I think magazines or whatever that were lying around. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of cool. It's funny, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's kind of got an acoustic chug to it, and he's yeah. singing. You know, to a woman about some other dude that loves her, I guess. But then, yeah, at the end, they're talking about, he loves your big refrigerator. He yeah. loves your, and it's a lot of car stuff. It's like power steering and, you know, parts service and stuff like that. There must have been a car flyer or something like that. But yeah, it's fun, you know, and everyone's singing together. Yes, Dylan's on lead. There's a little bit of a false ending to the yeah. song. And then yeah. it comes back a little bit. And you hear Harrison singing, you know, it's a dirty world. Um, love when you hold it, grab me up from behind. Oh, baby, you're such a pretty thing. I can't wait to introduce you to the other members of my gang. You don't need no wax job, you're smooth enough for me. If you need your oil change, I'll do it for you free. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, I don't know if I call it a gear shifter or not, but it's definitely different from handle to care, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and it's 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 interesting because in on that first track where Dylan is on there, he's he's singing kind of, you know, backup in harmonies, and this one he takes lead. So you can already tell, okay, this is what we're going to do here. We're going we're gonna to switch people around, 
and give everybody a chance. And I do like that part in the video where they're standing around doing the lines. Mm -hmm. And they're, I mean, it's, it looks like they recorded all at one time and they're just taking turns, stepping up, you know, saying their lines, stepping back. And I don't know whether they randomly got them or what, you know, how they distributed them, but it, it just looked like they were having fun. Exactly. They're having fun together. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's something that always happens. And this is an upbeat song. Not all of Dylan's songs are always upbeat. This is upbeat with horns, you know. I, and then you're right. To see them at the end, especially when you see them recording it, where they're yeah. taking turns saying these odd, weird little things. <laughs> it's like they're cracking each other up. They're just having fun. It's like we would eat dinner, and then we would go sing. I'm like, that sounds like <laughs> yeah and especially in you know in a world where they could have potentially just recorded a lot of the stuff independently and spliced it all together and come up with something the fact that they did hang out together and you know have dinner and write and collaborate and record it together i think makes this uh record a little more special also absolutely absolutely now the third song is rattled this is a little bit faster i, I kind of liken it to a 50s kind of skiffle song you know with the way that the chug of the guitars and, and stuff like that real simple solo george didn't try to outdo himself he kind of did a solo that kind of fits that era of songwriting yeah and this one definitely sounds like 50s inspired and a couple of these songs actually do and i don't know if that was having orvis in there as kind of a callback but yeah it, it kind of sounds like you've got those like twangy johnny cash guitars on this one And, and, and 50s, look, that's right up Jeff Lynn's alley. Right? Yeah. In the 70s, he was doing 50s stuff. And, <laughs> and he did write it. This is a Jeff Wright, you know. Uh, yeah. But you hear Roy doing his, you know, cat calls yeah. and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Tom throws it a little bit here. I mean, look, it's 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 not my favorite song, but it's a fun one. Uh, it's the shortest song on the album. It's barely three minutes. And it's got a good rhythm to it. You know, basically, it's Jeff and Tom here. I don't know if Dylan really did much on this song to be honest with you. But, you know, hey, it's a it's a good one. It, it's fast-paced, and uh, you know, it kind of falls in the middle of side one here. Right, and and it's, you know, we, we're changed up again to have Lynn on the lead, which he doesn't, I, he doesn't really sing lead a whole bunch on this one, so it's it's a nice change, and it's different than the, the track before it, so we're kind of, we're kind of moving, we're not getting set in any one genre or any one, you know, person singing lead from one track to the next. That's a good way to put it, yeah, you know, and, and Jeff doesn't need to, he's producing everything, he's helping to write the songs, George's yeah. got a distinct voice, Dylan's got a distinct voice, Roy obviously does mm -hmm. and, and tom makes it so he doesn't need to sing a lot of lead on here and his he contributes a lot to the harmony but i yeah i like he has some power in his voice when he comes on his range might not be huge but his timbre and everything it, it comes through very well absolutely now the fourth track i really like this could have been a single as far as i'm concerned and it's a good story song it's a tom petty right uh okay. and uh -huh. I kind of thought this was a single, to be honest, and, and I look because I remember hearing it, and so I'm like, well, okay, this was the third single, but apparently not. But you're right; I, I don't know why they didn't release it. And maybe it got some airplay, and we did hear mm. it on the radio at some point. You know, it's got Tom telling a story about how he met a girl, and it's got a boo -doo -doo, boo -doo -doo, 
It's got like a fun like a, little base. Like an, groove to it. Yeah, like an island groove kind of. A little bit. There's another one later that I think there's a huge island groove on. But yeah, it's 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 not the typical groove for any of these guys, really. Yeah. And then they all sing the chorus. The thing is, Patty would do like four lines, and then everybody would go, last night, that would be like the chorus. So the yeah. chorus is kind of throughout. It's not like there's three parts of the chorus. There's chorus all over the place. But then there would be a break for Roy to come in, where they kind of shift it. They go to minor chords. They kind of yeah, it's, it's a little darker when he comes in. Exactly, they're, yeah. they're kind of portending some bad things <laughs> happening. And of course, the second time he does, like she pulls out a knife, says "Your money or your life," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's the darker side." But <laughs> his voice is so smooth on it. It's like you're, you're being delivered this ominous bad news in the sweetest way possible by Roy. You know well. And it it almost sounds like like you're sitting at a bar telling your friend this story. Let me tell you about this crazy thing. That exactly what it last is. Yeah. Night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was there at the bar? She heard my guitar. She was long and tall. She was the queen of them all. Last night, thinking about last. And yeah. then it's almost like, you know, people are trying to like one up each other. And he's even saying about now I'm back in the bar. You know, it's like mm -hmm. it's the next day. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I went to the bar last night, picked up a chick. She tried to kill me. <laughs> and I'm back again. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> that was last night. You know? Yeah. Uh, more nights to come. So, yeah, I, I really like this one. And it kind of shows you where Tom Petty is as a songwriter because Full Moon Fever is coming out next, which sold a squajillion copies. I mean, something yeah. like that. It's something crazy. So he and, and of course on volume three, which was the second album, I feel like Petty had really kind of taken over. They don't have Roy anymore, and he did a lot of the songwriting and a lot of the singing too uh, on volume three. It, it, and you know, probably for good reason. Like, okay, Tom has had the biggest album that any of us have ever had with, with Full Moon mm. Fever, right? So let's kind of defer to that. Now, the the too bad part about Volume Three was that they they did want Del Shannon for the Runaway fame to be on that record. Yeah, and he tragically ended his life. So they went in with a four part. I just wonder what they would have done with him, you know, it, to, to kind of stretch things out. Because you're right, it was a little bit. It, it, you could definitely tell there was something. The magic just wasn't there. The, exactly the same. Right with the with that third with the well the second record they call Volume Three without Orbison. I, I agree with you totally. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, and they did. Jeff did cover Runaway mm -hmm. as a, like a bonus track that you get with that that box set collection or whatever you want to call it. You know that he that Tom Petty poached Howie Epstein, his longtime bassist, from Del Shannon. Oh uh, no, I didn't know that. But yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, when, when Ron left the band, he needed a new bass player. And Tom was friends with Dell. And, and I guess Howie had kind of become his musical director and kind of lead backing vocalist or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and Tom's like, I want Howie. And Dell was kind of pissed off at him. He's like, Tom, you can go get anyone you want. And you got to take Howie from me. <laughs> and he's like, Dell, I'm taking Howie. And he, goes, and he got over it, sort of. <laughs> Uh, but see, bringing it in the Wilburys would have been a way to make up for that. Right. Uh, but Dell couldn't stand the fact that he was not getting any love anymore. He couldn't get a record contract. He was that one hit from decades ago, I mean, three mm. decades ago. And he sadly took his own life before they could say, hey, you want to come along and 
and be with us. Of course, Howie basically ended up taking his own life because he succumbed to heroin, mm. which is horrible. Yeah. Yeah, that was really sad. It, it was interesting because I didn't really realize how, going back to that Wildflowers documentary, I mean, I knew Howie Epstein. I knew he'd been in the band. I didn't realize how how much he sang backup. Yeah. Tom. So it was that was an interesting nugget of information. Yeah, no, I mean, Tom loved singing backup with him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was also kind of mercurial. Like, when Tom was working on a solo album, he's like, they were working on a song one day. Now he's like, I don't get this song. I don't like it, and I don't want to sing on it. And Tom's like, well, okay, if, if you don't want to sing on it, you don't have to. He's like, yeah. And he split. Yeah, that song was free fall. <laughs> Yo. Uh, so, you know, he had his issues, I guess. Mm-hmm. God bless him. Anyway, the, the fifth song, the last of the first song, Not Alone Anymore. This mm-hmm. is a vehicle for Roy's beautiful voice. Correct. I know that uh, this one's credited to Lynn. This is this is Jeff Lynn writing a song for Roy Orbison. For Roy, yeah. And I know that there was a uh, there was some footage where they're saying, well, you know, we wouldn't, we didn't really know who was going to sing what. You know, we kind of take turns and see who came out. You know, who sounded the best. I can't imagine that was the that was the deal on this song. Not it this sounds one. like Lynn wrote that for him because it's right in his wheelhouse. Absolutely. No, he wrote a song, a Roy Orbison song for Roy. Mm-hmm. And this is the last, I mean, before they did You Got It on Mystery Girl, this is kind of Roy's last thing that he did purely for him while he was alive. It's a soaring ballad. It's 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 a great song for him. But apparently there was a first version that had like a different arrangement on it. Uh, and maybe different chord progressions on it. And everyone's like, especially Tom, they're like, nah, this, this song's like it. This isn't right. You know, we, yeah. and then Jeff's, and Roy are like, oh, man, this is great. So so Jeff changed it up, and he put in some acoustic stuff on it. And, like, the next day, like, the chords, all of a sudden, Roy's voice stuck out more, and it made more sense. And, like, oh, now we love it. You know, now it's awesome. <laughs> so then he fixed it up. And so, yeah, and, and so that's how that song worked out. It's always amazing to hear how, in demo form, it wasn't the same and wasn't very good, apparently. Yeah, right. How did you? Yeah, how did you get to the final thing? And you start off, you know, because I I think demos are just a way to find kind of the edges of what you're looking for, and then you get you just kind of layer it and you try different things, and then you come up with the final product that is sometimes not even close to being what the demo was. True that, absolutely. So, all right, Roy gets his time to shine on here. Just him, thanks to Jeff. Now you flip to the second side, although it was. Second side of the CD, as far as I'm concerned. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. I never liked this one. I, okay, why didn't you not like it? Okay, I, I think, honestly, first of all, it's a little slow. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I was not, when I first heard this in like 1988, 1989, I was not a huge Bob Dylan fan, and I didn't know his work that well, to be okay. perfectly honest. Listening to it now, I have a greater appreciation for it. You know, obviously that's Bob, that's Bob doing his thing. It's a Bob song. He wrote it. But yeah, it, congratulations. I mean, 
the, the chorus is not great to me. Yeah, I, I mean, he's a great songwriter, obviously not a great singer. The song is better than I remember it, but it's just, if there's any one that I probably wouldn't keep from the album, this, this would be the one. <laughs> I would say the same thing probably in 1988. Now, go, now listening to it for this show, I kind of like it because it's just a giant middle finger, you know, like he's, Oh, congratulations for breaking my heart. Like, you yeah. know, and it's, and it's Dylan, like, he's just like in that. I don't think anybody else could have sung this one the way that he does. Cause he's just like at that gravelly voice and, you know, you've yeah. got that call and, and response thing where he's, you know, they say congratulations and then he gives you the, gives you the line. Yeah. It, it, I mean, definitely a, a beast, uh, um, not a B side, but a, uh, album track, but it is a B side. It was the B side. end of the line. Oh, what? Oh, okay. Well, there yeah. you have it then. <laughs> See, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting song. Not the one that I'm in love with, but I mean, it is, it is nice to hear Dylan sing on this, one of his own songs. Congratulations for breaking my heart. Congratulations for tearing it all apart. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, it, it, look, George has a nice little slide bit at the beginning that I like. There's some orchestration there at the end. I, I just, you know, it's it's not a great song, and it's like. I get it. It's kind of congratulations for breaking my heart. You know, it's, it's it's not an actual congratulations, but it's it's kind of like to me, happy birthday is one of the worst songs ever written. It, it okay. sounds like something they play when you lose on a game show. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm sorry, the answer is lower motor neurons. Uh, better luck next time. Wah You know, it's it's a horrible song. This is like. Congratulations! You know, it's, it's that, that kind of is where it is for me. I, you know. All right, I, so you're hitting the skip button on that one. Pretty much, pretty uh, much. Although I was glad to listen to it because I had skipped it so many times in my life <laughs> to listen to the whole thing. It's like, okay, there's some good elements to this song. This isn't a total throwaway, but still don't love. It. Hey, this is Scott Holiday from the Rival Sons. You're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London. But then comes in Heading for the Light, mm -hmm. which I think is a beautiful song, a wonderful song, wonderful sentiment, and obviously a George Harrison song. And But also, obviously, a Jeff Lynn had his finger in this, too, because it sounds like, what if George Harrison was in the, was in the Electric Light Orchestra? Mm. Well, it would sound like this. Yeah, the, the harmony from Jeff on this is huge. In fact, in the yeah. harmony, you can almost not even hear George. Yes. Correct. Jeff is so, like, up in the mix. Yeah. But you can you can kind of tell it's like he's, he's singing about heading for the light, like coming back to the light. Maybe it's talking about spiritually, but I also feel like it's talking about professionally. Like, I'm coming back to a place where I don't resent the fact that I have to make pop records, where I don't, you know, <laughs> resent the fact. Like, I get to work with people I'm happy about working with and, 
working with Jeff on Cloud Nine, I think was a big thing for him. Got my mind set on you. It was a very upbeat song, and it was a hit for him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, think that, a, huh? It was a number one hit, wasn't it? I probably. Yeah. That's uh, crazy. It, it was big. You know, I remember the video with all the weird animals moving yeah. their mouths. Like the taxidermy guy must have had a blast with that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's him being back to the light spiritually, back to the light professionally. There's no record company people to mess with it, you know, and there's kind of a syncopated, I don't know, guitar or dobro or something like that at the beginning, which makes it a little different. Yeah. It also has a false ending. Uh, where it kind of fades back in. You got Jim Horn blowing his sax on it. So I love this one. If there's a 10 song best of the Wilburys, this would definitely be on it for me. Yeah. And then this is a nice one to find on the album also. You know, you know, you know the singles, but to hear, yeah, to hear Harrison singing like he's really having a good time is fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's sad when a great artist decides he doesn't really want to do it anymore. And, and I think he became jaded by it fame he didn't really want fame anymore he became jaded by the record industry but then of course you know he he still has an opportunity to express himself yeah and i think he also kind of got hosed on his on his uh movie deal too his handmade pictures he had a couple that were difficult to make i think he had problems with terry gilliam and he definitely had problems with uh sean penn and he was i think at this point in time he was just kind of burned out on the whole fame and you know entertainment business yeah i think so i think so so i think being able this was like a light at the end of the time i was like ah this is actually fun i I remember enjoying making music (laughs) i remember enjoying working you know so but okay, so but think about that for a minute though too. Like when you when you watched Get Back, which was the pretty much the end of the Beatles. I mean, did it look like he was having a whole lot of fun there? Even uh, it, it, it was twenty five or twenty six yeah, at that point. I mean, you know, yeah. now he's in his mid forties. Which again, at this point, there there really hadn't been any rock stars in their mid forties. The, the, the genre wasn't old enough for mm-hmm. them to be. You know, not to mention Elvis is dead, and you know, a lot of people from like that era. Well, they were relegated to way the sidelines. Yeah, like Little Richard's still alive, but he's not on the charts, you know, right. and he, he's playing, you know, small clubs and stuff like that. So there really were no middle aged rock stars yet. And um, so they're proving, hey, we can still do this despite and, our and, age. Right. And and not only and not only be it like a legacy act, like here's new stuff. That exactly can go onto the radio and be a number one hit. Yeah, you're right. Th- this was kind of the dawn of classic rock radio and yeah and and, and new classic rock right, right you know right. so and it's, it's not long after this you know that the steel wheels comes out for the stones you know and they're having a big comeback it's like hey yeah we're in our early to mid 40s but we can still be relevant yeah absolutely so now the next track margarita this is the b-side to handle with care this one i feel like is very different from everything else on the album because it's got that synth to start out you know? yeah yeah, very, very, yes, very interesting. And and there's a lot of instrument, uh, a lot of instrumental parts in this, not a lot of lyrics. Yeah, it's it's almost an instrumental, not quite. But I mean, George puts some nice slide on here that I've always mm-hmm. liked. Dylan takes the lead. But this is the one that kind of has a Calypso island vibe to okay. it to me. Yeah, you know? yeah. The, the, I really like that slide guitar part. And I think that's but probably another thing that Harrison doesn't get enough credit for either is being able to play the guitar. Margarita. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there was that time in the 60s where he was, you know, he was hanging out with Brad Shankar, was kind of contemplating, maybe I should just become a sitar player <laughs> and not a guitar player. And then he kind of realized, well, there's a thousand people on the streets of India who can play better than me. Mm-hmm. But I do have some experience playing the guitar, and I can be a leader in that field. So long I kind of stick to that. And I'm glad he did. I mean, obviously, his slide put some great texture on a lot of these songs. Yeah, and we didn't need sitar on everything either. No, no that's, a little, that's a little far fetched. <laughs> Dylan's on lead, but Tom wrote it, and, and Tom comes in for the second part here. So this is a petty right that he kind of offered up to Bob. Right, and, and that's that's the one the one thing I like also on this is that there are songs where person A wrote it but did not sing lead. Like you'd figure, well, you know, I wrote this one, so I'm going to take the lead. And maybe maybe this was one where I mean the the or, the Orbison one no obviously that was something different but I mean maybe did he try it and Dylan sounded better I don't know I don't know and then apparently on the third of volume three the second album they tried Bob on all track because he had to go and do some tour dates and stuff like that so they they kind of got him to sing all of them and then they decided you know which one he would actually be the lead on kind of thing mm-hmm. good harmonies again from the guys on this a lot of O's and Ahs. And then at the beginning, bar, it's just mm-hmm. having them all together. It's a kind of a special sound, man. But, you know, we like the harmonies of Def Leppard. We, we like the harmonies of a lot of different bands. So this, even though it's kind of a quirky song, should be right up our alley from the harmonies. Yeah, no, I, I, I do like this, even though it's, it's not, it doesn't really fit in with the rest of this stuff. But that's, I think, kind of why I like this album, too, is it doesn't all sound the same. And that's, I think that comes from having multiple people writing songs. Yeah, absolutely. So now we get to what I think is the most interesting track on the record, Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Mm-hmm. And it's easily the longest track. I mean, all the tracks are about three and a half minutes or so. Rattle is only three. But this is five and a half minutes. And this is Dylan storytelling <laughs> through and through. Uh, and apparently Tom played this at like Bonnaroo. And I had a buddy Stouffer who went to see Tom Petty. He's like, yeah, there was this one song he played. I didn't know what it was. Like it was Tweeter in the Monkey. I was like, God, I'd kill to see him play that song. Because <laughs> obviously there was never any kind of Wilbury tour. Mm-hmm. And so, and Dylan probably, I don't know if he ever played it or not, to be honest. With you, but he's got so many songs to choose from in his vast catalog. Who, who knows? But I mean, I guess Tom broke it up broken out at some point which is pretty cool yeah um, i would like i'd like to hear him do that it, it definitely sounds like this was maybe one that he had dylan had in his back pocket or he had been working on because mm-hmm. this this doesn't sound like anything else this sounds like bob dylan wrote this on his own and brought it in and just i mean it's almost like hurricane uh with its storytelling yeah. here yeah. about you know just first of all you're in new jersey which is you know where hurricane took place you're talking about drug dealers on the run, messing with the cops. It's very imagistic. It, it, it creates a story that you can really follow along. Right. And I think he's got the line in there. In Jersey, everything's legal as long as you don't get caught. That's right. That's a very true statement, just so you know. Just so you know, yeah. And mm-hmm. what I never knew or didn't realize uh, before doing some research for the show is that, oh, it's like Tom and, well, first of all, Tom and Bob kind of wrote this together like, Harrison's like, Jeff and I were there, and and Bob and, and Tom were kind of right scribbling back and forth, and we weren't really that involved in it. It's like, it was kind of their thing. Mm. Um, Jeff may have contributed a little bit, but sometimes people regard this as a playful homage 
to Bruce Springsteen, who is often, you know, tabbed as the next great songwriter, the next great kind of Bob Dylan type, because, you know, first of all, set in New Jersey, which is Springsteen's home. Right. But so that you, you hear him mention Thunder Road, Down the Thunder Road in the song, which is a Bruce Springsteen song. Mansion on the Hill, which is a Bruce Springsteen song. You know, State Trooper was a Bruce Springsteen song. Stolen Car, The River, you know. Mm-hmm. Jersey Girl was a Springsteen song, even though Tom Waits was. So there's so many little references to Springsteen titles in here. That's probably not by accident. No, it couldn't be. It could. So is he is he paying homage to Springsteen, or is he saying you'll never be me, or I don't know what's going on here. I don't know, but it's a hell of a story song. Mm-hmm. And you know, talking about Tweeter was Tweeter a crossdresser was treated transsexual. Is there's some odd stuff in here? We're not really <laughs> sure exactly what's going on. And the undercover cop had a sister named Jan who loved the monkey man. It's kind of an ominous song, and really. You only hear the rest of the guys on the course, and the walls came down. Yeah. But Dylan telling the story, this is some great Dylan right here. And the fact that it ended up on a, on a Wilberry's album is cool because, you know, at the time, some of the stuff Dylan was doing wasn't really hitting all that big, you know. And, and then it was it 89 or 90 Under the Red Sky came out. That didn't do as well as Oh Mercy, I don't feel like, you know. So mm-hmm. Bob's kind of hitting this. This to me is Bob right down the middle, exactly what he ought to be doing. Twitter and the monkey man were hard up for cash. They stayed up all night selling cocaine and hash. To an undercover cop who had a sister name. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that, you know, even from the beginning, it was, or from the beginning track, Dylan and, and Petty, their, their voices kind of sound the most, they're the most compatible mm-hmm. out of all four of them. And it kind of sounds like their songwriting is the most compatible also. Yeah, and they obviously got to know each other pretty well doing that tour together where Tom mm-hmm. and the Heartbreakers were his backing band. So it makes sense. I just, to me, this is a forgotten classic. They don't play it on the radio a lot because it's a little long and it's it's kind of a rare track, but I think it's killer. I'm so glad it ended up on this album and not a Bob Dylan album, if just for the harmonies. And the fact that it stands out with all these like three and a half minute ditties, this is kind of a long story song. And this would obviously be in the top 10 for me. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it's it's a great find on this record because you're not gonna you're not gonna hear it anywhere else. And I'm glad it's got a weird title too, like Tweeter the Man. I don't even know what this is about. But if you listen to it, yeah, it's a great story song. And it almost kind of sounds like, you know, who are these guys? These guys are storytellers. And this is like another chapter in the story they're telling you. Like it's not all happy and shiny. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So coming to the last song of the album, End of the Line. Which, of course, had the big video. They're kind of on a, on a train, right? Yeah, on a train, yeah. This was released the 23rd of January of 89, but Roy had died December 6th of 88. Mm-hmm. So he, he'd seen them get into the charts or whatever, but wasn't around for this song to be released. So they when they did the video, they're all on the train, and then they had a rocking chair there with the black acoustic guitar in it. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to Roy's turn in the song, he just kind of made the thing rock and put the spotlight on him. 
so, which is, I thought was a really cool tribute to Roy. Well, I think, because I went back and I mean, watched this video to get ready for the show. And yeah, they do that. And then it looks like they, there's a, they've got a little picture of him on a table. And it looks like everything kind of gets darker when he, when his thing comes, when his verse comes in and then it yeah. kind of lightens up again. Kind of a, yeah, tribute to him. That's right. The, the whole place gets darker except for the spotlight on his rocking yeah. chair. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, this is a Harrison song, you know. So mm. George does the first lead bit and he does the last lead bit. Jeff does the second bit and the second to last bit. Tom, in addition to playing bass, kind of does the interlude. Don't have to be ashamed of yeah. it. Right yeah. No Dylan lead us vocals on this. He's only, you know, in the background. But Roy did have the middle. So it's kind of like Jeff first. I'm sorry. George first, then Jeff. Tom's doing the middle bits. Roy's in the middle. And then Jeff and then George kind of finishes it out. It's very upbeat. I always like this song. And Petty did play it with the Heartbreakers on the 2008 tour. Oh, uh, nice. And and it's a nice, it's a nice upbeat way to end the record after the Dylan track. Well, it's all right. Absolutely, you know, it, yeah. it hit the charts, number two U.S. album rock chart, 28 U.S. Uh, adult contemporary, you know, hit top 10 in Canada and, and, you know, was a silver, certified silver single in the U.K., you know. So, again, they only released two singles, but they did pretty well. And then they knew after this, everyone's kind of going to go back to doing their own thing again. Dylan's got a tour. Tom's got to work on a record. Roy's got shows he's got to do, you know, that kind of thing. But obviously with the death of Roy, that everybody kind of moving back to their own stuff, it's kind of a one and done. Yes, there was a second record, but it didn't really feature Roy, which just changes it just ever so slightly. It's not quite the same. This is the superest of all supergroups, <laughs> and they only made one record, which is what happens to supergroups. Everybody's got something else they can go do. That's the point of a supergroup. Yes, it may be great when they're together, but they can all leave and do something else. Right, right. And and there, I think there was some, you know, you mentioned that that Harrison didn't really like to tour. And so, I mean, that, that tour like this was never really going to work. There was too many moving pieces. But he had some kind of idea about like renting an aircraft carrier or something. And then like, you know, they could all live on it and travel around and... I mean, I understand that was pie in the sky, but, yeah. you know, to, to have seen them at least play a couple of the shows, that would have been awesome. I know. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, a tour was never going to work, a large scale tour. There was just too many, too many moving pieces. Yeah. And apparently Tom was begging to do it. Like, George, it's so much money, dude. We got to do it. You know, <laughs> think about that. But the thing is, George did eventually do a tour of Japan. And this time he had Eric Clapton and his band. Backing him, the same band that I saw on the Journeyman tour in 1990, that included okay. Nathan East and I think Ray Cooper, who played on this album, was part of Eric's band at that time. Steve Ferroni, who would eventually join the Heartbreakers, 
was Eric's drummer at the time. So he went out and did that. He recorded an album, which I bought back in the day, which is which is pretty cool, live in Japan. And after that, he's like, well, maybe we could do some Wilbury shows, but I guess without Roy, it's just, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And Tom had now blown up to enormous heights, and Dylan's always got his own thing going. So it, it never came together, which is sad. It, even if they just done one show and filled yeah. it, yeah, that would have been amazing. Correct. Yeah, you know, in in London, in New York, in LA, something like that. Yeah, at the, at the Greek Theater. What if you could have had one record of them playing together? Yeah, that mm-hmm. would have been great. Now there were a couple of bonus tracks that came with the re-release. The first one was Maxine, which mm-hmm. is obviously a Harrison Wright. <laughs> I mean, just very obviously, you know, and lots of acoustic overdubs. It almost sounds like an Irish folk song in the beginning to me. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot to the song. There's not a big solo or anything. He was probably left off because uh, it wasn't 100% fleshed out. You know, and no. it, it starts with one, two, three, four, five. So it's like Tom's counting off or whatever. It's like, yeah, he probably edited that out of a real song. And at the end, it's like, you can hear George say, okay, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the song's over, right? <laughs> I think it's only two minutes and change. Like it's not, it's not even three minutes long. So yeah, yeah it definitely kind of does sound like a like an unfinished piece, like an eighty-five to ninety percent finished yeah. song, like not quite. And the same with "Like a Ship," uh, which Dylan wrote and sang on. Uh, it, it's more three and a half minutes, like like most of the rest of the song of the album. It's just not quite a finished song. I mean, it's cool that we got to hear it. Both of them. They both had drums on it. They both have good harmonies and stuff on it, uh, but they're they're not a hundred percent finished in my opinion. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that I do like about this record is that they're all all of the the songs are short, so the, it gives you a chance to go from track to track. There's no big instrumental interludes. There's no freak out guitar solos. Uh, the, even the, there really aren't any big riffs in this. It's just it's basically just a vehicle for these guys to sing on. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, so they've all got momentum here now. You know, and I won't back down. Big song for Tom Petty on the next record. Well, who was in the video? Well, Jeff Lynne was in the video. George Harrison was in the video. Mike Campbell of the Heartbreakers, and then Ringo Starr. Ringo. Yeah. And what, what was the DJ's name? Kevin. He had dark hair. You remember that guy? Uh, on MTV. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know who you're talking about, yes. Kevin Seal. Okay. I remember him introducing the video one night. It's like, there's two Heartbreakers, there's three Wilburys, and there's two Beatles. <laughs> so there must be seven people in this video, you know, kind of thing. But I just remember it being a big deal, having Ringo on there. And George, you know, he's back mm-hmm. doing his stuff again. Good to see Mike back, because you know that Tom considers Mike Campbell his co-pilot. Doesn't really want to work without him. Yeah, that was a that was a thing on that Wildflowers deal where it was like, you know, is this going to be a Heartbreaker record? Is it going to be a is it going to be a Tom Petty record? What are we going to do on this? And they're like, well, you know, if we have Howie and we have you know Stan and and everybody, it would be a Heartbreaker record. So there was never any question of mike campbell like he's not like is he going to be on the record is he not he's there and then we'll see if we get the other guys or not exactly yeah exactly and yeah that was the thing about wildfires the only one who really wasn't on it was stan and that was his fault and yeah and he's and he left he basically was done after that and they brought steve brony in because he was available Mm -hmm. 
he gelled with them well. And then and then he joined the Heartbreakers thereafter, you know. And mm-hmm. Tom would always say the best record we, as a collective, the Heartbreakers ever did, was Wildflowers. When it's technically not a Heartbreakers record. It's, it's a Tom Petty record, but it's got, after that came out, it's got the Heartbreakers lineup on it, you know. Yeah, right. So, and of course, now what tragically is, yes, Roy died while it was on the charts, while it was still brand new. And since then, George died. And then sadly, Tom Petty did, the youngest of the Wilburys. Mm-hmm. He died. So now the only people left are Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynne, mm-hmm. which is sad. But, you know, I mean, you, you, you lost Roy 35 years ago, right? So, uh, and, and you know, these people are getting older. George you know, suffered a brutal attack by a would-be murderer, which, you know, he survived it, but he didn't live a hell of a... Tom, I think, died from a mix of all the different medicines that he was on. Right after he finished, they basically said, this is the last big tour. Not that we're never going to play again, but like, this is the last big tour. I got to see him. I was really psyched about it. Joe Walsh opened for him. And then, then, yeah, Tom Petty left us. So I feel like this is an important part of all the folks who passed away's legacy. Important for Jeff Lynne, maybe least important to Bob Dylan, if I had to guess. I would say you're probably right, because I think Bob Dylan would have existed regardless of this record. And he's carried on doing his thing, releasing records when he wants to. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, you're going to to listen to whatever he puts out. And, And he doesn't, I don't think he's ever really cared about whether you like me or not, this is what I'm going to do. So it, it was nice that he was part of this, but yeah, you're right. I don't think this really affected him one way or the other. Right. Whereas, you know, Tom Petty, this was big for him. And then because of this, he got Full Moon Fever, mm-hmm. which is the biggest album he ever did, which is the biggest album any of them ever did. This was yeah. big for George because it was kind of put him back in the spotlight and, and made him happy to be making music again. It was big for Jeff Lynne because then he gets to produce everybody's albums. He gets to produce the first Beatles song in 25 years or whatever it is <laughs> with free as a bird that's a huge deal he gets to keep ELL going ELL going and obviously it was huge for Roy because he'd never been in the charts for two decades and now he's back and he was psyched and it's sorry that he lost his life but I, so I feel like as far as everyone's legacy goes this plays an important role but least of which I'd have to say is Dylan's yeah it, it's interesting you, you probably the top two are either Harrison and or Orbison, and I would say Harrison only because this this really cemented him as kind of got him out of the Beatles' shadow. I mean, I know Cloud Nine had come out, but this was really like you know it was his band. He did this. He could. It, it, I think it reminded people that he was just as much of a part of the Beatles' success as John and and Paul and John. Yeah, yeah, and he deserves that credit. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He, he he was. I mean, he he calls himself the Dark Horse. He had the he had the track Dark Horse. But I mean, this this really kind of cemented, at least to, I think, to our generation of people that yeah, this dude was a powerhouse on his own. Yeah, and All Things Must Pass, which was the triple album that came out after the demise of the Beatles, mm. I think is the best solo album any of the Beatles ever made. Of course, he had all these tracks saved up that he couldn't get on a Beatles record. So he's like. All right, I'll just say it. I'll just say it. I'll just say it. And it had what is life on it, and it had my sweet lord on it, and uh, it was you know it's fantastic. He, he's really my favorite. I love Paul McCartney and everything, mm-hmm. and he's been fairly prolific. But I you know I, I just feel like George was the had the coolest solo career. Those Beatles. He didn't tour a lot. He didn't really like to tour. He didn't love performing live all the time. But he made some great records. Right, and I think that's what, I think that's what. 
came through for me on this on this documentary is I don't think he really ever wanted to be a solo artist. I think he did because he kind of had to. Right. I think really he was more comfortable in a band setting. I think so. And a great collaborator. Penny mm -hmm. tells a story about how they were playing ukuleles. Basically, George is teaching Tom how to play the ukulele. <laughs> so they're walking around the garden, you know, playing their chords and strumming, and he's teaching him how to do it. And he's like, I'm going to give you a ukulele. And Tom's like, well, you gave me this one. This is all I need. He's like, no, no, we might need more ukulele. So he goes over to his car. And he opens it up. I don't know if there's a half dozen or a dozen ukes in there or something like that. <laughs> and Tom's like, what are you doing with all these ukuleles in your car? It's kind of it's kind of weird. And yet, it's kind of awesome. And you're giving me one and teaching me how to play it and stuff like that. So apparently, that's what George always traveled with, ute, because it's easy to take on a plane and it doesn't huh. take up a lot of space. And basically, those four strings get the bottom four strings of the guitar anyway. So... You can you can play you can play those yeah, things you, yeah yeah and you can get your point across with a much smaller instrument huh that's one of those things where like if you said you know George Harrison has twelve ukuleles in the back of his car like no he doesn't but that makes sense that he would okay I could yeah. see that going either way that of course he does so in in light of all the the heaviness that we've been doing and the book reviews I'm like let's take a step back let's Let's do something just a little different. And this was a fun listen. I, I think it was too. And if you're only if you're only familiar with Handle with Care, Last Night, and End of the Line, you're gonna be pleasantly surprised with the rest of this record. Well, I hope you enjoyed our take on Traveling Wilburys Volume One. It's a fun album to go back and listen to, you know. It was big I guess when we were in high school, we're starting to get into that harder rock stuff, so it probably wasn't our favorite at the time, but those two big singles, Handle With Care and End Of The Line, were big on MTV, they were big on rock radio, and it was huge for all the guys in the band. It was really cool to see these legends all come together and have some fun and make a cool record. I think it surprised Jackson that I wanted to do it, but when I saw it was coming up on a 35th anniversary, I thought, you know what, that's a cool album. It's kind of a cool story within the story of all these guys, all these legends, amazing careers. And quite frankly, we recorded this in the summer when we had been doing a lot of heavy metal. So I needed something a little bit lighter there. And you may have noticed that our sound was a little off. I was still in the middle of moving around and, and trying to get the sound right as we move back to America here. So hopefully this is the last show that has that kind of issue with my voice on it. But we appreciate you listen either way. And if you go back and listen to Traveling Wilburys, I think you'll like it. And Volume 3 was pretty good, too. It wasn't quite the same because there's no Roy. And I feel like the bloom was off the rose a little bit. They all kind of felt like they'd done it already. And it was more of a Tom Petty thing because he was just so hot at the time. But at any rate, we hope you enjoy it here. And we appreciate you listening. And we appreciate you downloading and subscribing wherever you get your podcast. And folks, if you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor. Go in and give us a positive review. It really doesn't matter where you get your podcast. If you give us a positive review, it's just a huge help to us. It helps us find more rock and roll fans like you, help you grow the show, help us get better guests. And if we hear it or if we see it, if you send it to us, we may just read it on the show. So as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? 
you got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You tell us the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the rock properties that you want to hear us talk about on the show. Thanks, of course, to Pantheon Podcast for making us a part of the family. And thanks to our sponsors, RareVinyl.com, where I'm not sure if they have any Traveling Wilbury stuff, but I know they got a ton of Beatles stuff. I know they've got Bob Dylan stuff. I know they've got ELO stuff. I bet they've got Roy Orbison and Tom Petty stuff. Go to RareVinyl.com. Use the code UGLY, save 10% off anything you buy from any band. It's a great deal. Some fun stuff coming up on The Wolf that we can't wait to tell you about. But until then, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.